Hello, 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 and welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. I am so happy to be back and on the mend and feeling so much better and faster than I expected. I didn't want to put this off any longer. I know it's still very late, but I have a very passionate and maybe a little messy rant about season 10 of American Horror Story. During Red Tide, I did a lot of episode recaps, and when Death Valley rolled around, I just, I had so many thoughts, and I wanted to wait to collect my thoughts, and I have done just that. I have done my best to pick up the pieces, and I will present to you the mosaic. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now on with the show, on with the holiday shenanigans. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is among us. I see Christmas trees already up in the neighborhood. I'm so excited. And holiday drinks are back at Stabby's and Dunkies. And I have the white mocha hot chocolate and it is delicious. Let me tell you, Dunkies isn't even like pretending to hide that they're copying Starbucks. They have the peppermint mocha signature latte and the toasted white chocolate signature latte. Where else in the world at any given time have you heard toasted white chocolate? Picture a white chocolate candy bar in your mind toasted it's not a thing it's a stabby's thing it's starbucks only and dunks trying to rebrand and be the you know cool new chick on the block they are just blatantly copying and i'm kind of here for it cheaper options i'm nervous to try their toasted white chocolate drink because they're gonna mess it up somehow i can already taste the wateriness of it all and the random sips of way too sweet syrup i'm gonna try it but you know what are you gonna do but in the meantime i just have a hot chocolate so i don't have coffee technically but it is delicious I already had a Celsius today. And if you don't know, by the way, Celsius is the most incredible energy drink. I love it. Apparently it's like healthy and burns body fat. I don't care. It just tastes good. And it gives me energy. Gives me the zoom zooms. But the last time I had a Celsius and coffee in the same day, I felt my heart doing the crank that soldier boy right out of my chest. So I learned to not make that mistake twice. So I am technically caffeinated and I'm also feeling very festive. So with that cocktail, let's get into the American Horror Story rant. I want to preface by saying this is all in good fun, okay? This isn't that serious. It's just a television show. It's not that deep. When I get passionate and intense and start throwing out F-bombs, I feel it like in that moment, in that second, I feel annoyed. But then I go about my daily life knowing that American Horror Story isn't that deep. It's not that important. It's just a television show for entertainment. So please don't mistake my high energy and pettiness for something that it's not. I have nothing but respect for the team, you know, Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk. I have nothing but love and respect. They are obviously very creative individuals. It's just that what they created, um, it wasn't my favorite. We'll say that. Actually, I'll go a step further and say it was my least favorite season of American Horror Story. Should we do a ranking? Would that be amazing? A ranking of all the American Horror Stories? You guys, you guys wouldn't be ready. I'm rambling. Let's get into the rant, okay? Let's get started. I thought I was the majority and maybe I am. Maybe it's genuinely split or maybe I am fucking Tom Hanks 
Hanks in Castaway, and it's just me and Wilson on the island. But I hated Double Feature as a whole. If you have listened to my previous episodes, you know that I was thoroughly enjoying Red Tide. But I am a firm believer that endings are everything. And if you are rolling your eyes at me, I present Exhibit A, B, C, and D. And your honor, they are all Game of Thrones. Season 7 was a downfall that crashed into a dumpster fire with Bran ruling over the trash ashes. So yeah, I was not happy. I don't even know where to start. You cannot tell me that the ending of Game of Thrones, for those of us who felt personally attacked by it, did not ruin the whole series. That's all I hear is that the whole series is ruined because of the ending. Do I feel exactly that over the course of all the seasons? No. But Double Feature was a smaller timetable. The burn stung a little bit more. I don't even know where to start. I might be all over the place and I apologize for that. But I was so disappointed. I loved the Red Tide part. Well, I did up until the last episode. I thought the ending left more to be desired. It felt out of place and messy. I get that it was ambiguous. Sure, whatever. I get the open-ended episodes. I don't love them, but I get the appeal and the creativeness of it all. I just like a little bit more resolution, even if it's ambiguous. I feel like there's a way to go about that. Overall, every episode aside from the last episode and half of the prior was beautiful. Loved them. And in a way, doesn't that make all of this even more disappointing? We were built up so high and we became so attached to these characters and their story and then it just fell flat. And I still gave it a chance. We had Death Valley. And let me just say, we got played. Actually, let me not lump you into that. I got played. I thought they were going to be connected. And I thought that was confirmed. I suppose I was mistaken, but I have something that I'm going to present later that may change your mind. Maybe it changes my mind. I haven't decided yet. Some have speculated that the second part was the series or the screenplay that Harry Gardner was working on. I suppose that could still be speculated. If you don't know or have chosen to forget, let me remind you very quickly. Season 10 of American Horror Story titled Double Feature was split into two parts. First was Red Tide for a total of six episodes. And the other, Death Valley. Red Tide follows the Gardner family who moved to Provincetown, Massachusetts. The dad is trying to make his big writing break in the screenplay world. The pregnant mom is trying to be the queen of fucking Pinterest. And the daughter, who is the second coming of Damien from The Omen, but maker neurotic and at an instrument. The dad comes across two other creatives in the town and one offers him a little black pill that unlocks a massive creative part of his brain. So he begins feeling ultra inspired and writes himself into a successful frenzy that made him obsessed with and even addicted to the pill. Or at least the success that comes with the pill. But really I feel like the two go hand in hand. But it's not all sunshine and roses. The pill puts you on the ultimate Bella Lugosi diet. His little Damien child also starts taking these pills. So the two of them, especially the daughter named Alma, are just pounding human blood. Alma even takes a little taste of her newborn brother's blood. The child vampire situation is obviously a problem. And the two creatives that showed the black pill to Harry, Belle and Austin, are regretting their decision. And in addition to that, the maker of the pill named simply the chemist is also not very happy about this. The decision is made that him and the kid need to be rid of forever. Oh, also the mom, Doris, I think her name, she also takes a pill and unfortunately she's just not a worthy popper. And what that means is you get turned into a brainless zombie. So she's out. She's off eating squirrels in a graveyard. Fast forward a little bit and Alma 
actually kills her father in order to be the greatest because she thinks he will hold her back. Harry's ambitious manager, Ursula, who came out to visit and found herself on a mission to peddle the little black pills to Hollywood, leads a band of zombies to Belle and Austin, killing them as well. So the dominoes left standing are the chemist, the maker of the pill, Alma, and the manager, Ursula. And of course, the newborn gardener baby. It all ends with Alma killing someone to get first chair for her violinist situation, once again proving that she is an actual psychopath, the chemist getting sweet revenge, and Ursula peddling the pills to young college kids. To the point where the streets are overrun with uncreative zombies. At the very end, the chemist takes the baby and says, we will move on to a new place and maybe make a new drug that will let us live forever. I thought it was a whole big metaphor for class issues, especially with the lower class being considered the lesser than and more specifically targeting those with an addiction to meth or an addiction to drugs. They are lesser. I think it really spotlights the idea that in the real world, they would be considered lesser than because of their drug addiction. But those in the upper class also have an addiction to the little black pill and also human blood. They both feed on innocence in one way or another. The snuff film guy that we saw in Red Tide fed on innocent people that were just trying to buy some shit off Craigslist. And then you have the Belle Noirs of the world feeding on um, infants and babies. Both have monstrous addictions. One just happens to be viewed as more favorable, more posh, which is extremely hypocritical. The potential for Red Tide was insane. The writing was provocative and seemed like old school American horror story for the first few episodes. And please don't think I'm one of those people that are like, oh my God, American Horror Story was great. And then after Asylum, it just went downhill. I don't necessarily believe that, nor do I judge the people who do, but I'm not that person. I think if they made the entire season Red Tide, that could have been the plan. And then COVID went and derailed that plan. That's very possible. But I think it would have been more successful if it was just all Red Tide. And now we move into Death Valley, which was four episodes. I know I didn't cover much of that, so I'll dig a little deeper here, but I won't bore you to tears with every little detail. Death Valley starts in black and white. The year is 1954, I believe, and it's very picturesque. Everything that everyone romanticizes about the 50s. A beautiful time consisting of poodle skirts and milkshakes, polio, segregation, and Swanson TV dinners. Suddenly the romance ends and we're in this 50s home and there's a mom and her son and the son disappears in a dust storm when he's playing outside. As she goes to presumably call the police, she hears her son through the phone. He then appears and she's suctioned to the ceiling and her son, little Timmy, is like, take my hand, mommy. The hardworking husband of the 50s comes home to find his dear wife Maria levitating in the living room with white eyes and then with a flip of her wrist blows his head off. Then we flash to President Eisenhower playing golf when he's told that a vehicle was shot down and blah, 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 blah. Obviously, when he gets to the location to see the pieces of said vehicle, it's a whole UFO situation. And they also find a woman with strange markings on her back. Turns out this woman is Amelia Earhart and says she was abducted. And she's freaking out saying, no, 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 no. Roosevelt is president. Where is Fred? Obviously, she's confused and has time traveled somehow. But to add to the confusion, Miss Earhart is pregnant. A bunch of weird and tentacle alien type shit follows 
goes, and it comes to a head when Miss Mother Maria was floating around a presidential bunker of sorts, and she just starts blowing off the heads of these security government people one at a time. Eisenhower pleads with her to stop the madness and is like, come on now, lady, listen to me and we'll figure this out. You just gotta stop. And she's like, bitch, are you blind? I'm a floating alien that can blow heads off telepathically. You're gonna listen to me. The mission is simple. Let us abduct humans to breed like guinea pigs until we have our perfect creatures for the continuation of our alien kind. Not like Eisenhower had a choice in the matter, so he makes the deal. Now we move on to when Death Valley becomes unforgivable, a spit in the fucking face. They go from Neil McDonough's beautiful performance as Eisenhower, truly he carried this part of the season. From there we move to present day, where we are handed a mindless, forced, corny conversation amongst college-age friends about a girl crying because she's allergic to her boyfriend's fucking jizz. The acting in the modern day portion was abysmal, and the writing was trash. I'm sorry, it was. It was so bad, I have to believe that it was intentional. I have yet to figure out the why, but to go from Red Tide to the Eisenhower storyline to a young woman who needs an allergy dog tag for semen, I cannot believe this is all coming from the same camp. It's impossible. I refuse to believe it. So the college kids consisting of two girls and two boys, and then they are dropped right back down to earth after they get knocked up. The dudes too, by the way, which we love inclusity. Snaps there. Points for that. After they realize they're pregnant and freak out their ultrasound technician, the uh, men in black come and re-abduct them, I guess. It's a strange part of the show that I never figured out. Why would you abduct them, knock them up, then put them right back down to earth when we see later that that's literally not what happens? When the college kids uh, birth their babies, it's brutal and crazy and absolutely horrifying. I literally yelled, oh my God, during the first birth. The babies are apparently no good except for the main girls, uh, the Kaya Gerber baby. I forget her name in the show. Gerber baby. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> Get it? And that baby means the continuous continued existence for this hybrid alien kind. When this happens, the aliens, specifically one named Valiant Thor, who was also boning Mamie Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's wife, fan fiction writers across the world rejoice at this. Their fingers were falling off when they saw Mammy climb on top of that alien boy. And they fell off because they were typing stories, you nasties, not because, you know, never mind. Should I find a fan fiction on this? Let's find an excerpt at least. Let's dig. Okay, so I searched pretty far and wide, and surprisingly, I couldn't find any Mamie and Valiant Thor stories, but the Valiant Thor smut is everywhere. And of course, I want to credit the author, Little Demon Danny on Tumblr. Shout out to you, giving folks the satisfaction in a way Mr. Murphy could never. Warning, highly sexual content ahead. Valiant licks her through her orgasm, only stopping once she pushed his head away from her. What was that for? Y slash N asks. Is that a thing in fan fiction? Is that you not? What, What does that mean? I don't know. Yes, no asks. Sure. Panting slut 
lightly as she adjusts her panties and skirt. You've never done anything like that spontaneously before. You looked like you were having a bad day. I wanted to make you feel better, he says, wiping his mouth with the handkerchief in his tuxedo pocket. Do you feel better? I do, she says with a nod, standing up, wrapping her arms around his waist as she meets his eyes. You should do that more often, even when I'm not having bad days. Valiant raises a brow at her, a hint of smirk pulling at his plump lips. Consider it done. Fanfic is wild, man. I don't judge. Like, I think there is humor in it for me, but the joke is 1000% on me and us who find humor in it. Because fan fiction and adult novelists have a cult like no other. People love that shit. So great work. Keep it up, Danny. Back to the story at hand. Once the perfect little Gerber alien baby is produced, the alien hybrids are like, oh, Pixies backsies by human race. We never actually see that happen. That also was left pretty ambiguous, but yeah, that's that's basically the ending. I clung on after each week in a desperate attempt to make it all make sense, but it was so awful for me. Again, the Death Valley story could have been incredible, but instead it made no sense and it was a jumble of a mess that had no end game and no real conclusion. The conclusion, I guess, was that these hybrid creatures take over. That's how humans end in the American Horror Story universe? I don't get it. We don't know, though. The webs this season weaved are fucked up and confusing. I will say, Neil McDonough and Sarah Paulson did an absolutely fabulous job as the Eisenhowers. And Craig Sheffer, I don't think he's getting enough credit as Nixon. His Nixon was perfection. He did such a great job. The voice was wow. The sweating, amazing. The mannerisms, I just think he deserves more credit. I do feel bad for being harsh because, again, I respect the writers and the team for putting this together in a pandemic. But my thoughts are my thoughts and my feelings are my feelings and like I said at the beginning it's really not that deep I just get really passionate when I talk about it visually it was all stunning it had potential but it was a miss for me a lot of people are up in arms defending the two not being connected and they explain that the title double feature alone doesn't mean the season was always going to be connected I don't know if anyone was actually arguing that I think we all know a double feature is like two separate stories I didn't think the name alone was proof of a connection but I remember a few instances that made us believe the two stories were in fact connected at least I did I have an excerpt here from an article talking about a Leslie Grossman interview with Newsweek. Let me read that really quick. Grossman additionally confirmed that she will appear in Death Valley before hinting that in true American Horror Story fashion, the season's second half might not just connect to Red Tide, but some of the series' previous seasons as well. Quote, There are always little connections and Easter eggs that are left for the fan base, and so there's always a tie and a connection with all of the seasons, unquote. Grossman cryptically teased when asked about Death Valley. Leslie also said this according to ET Online. There are threads that will make themselves clear throughout the course of season 10. Looking back, I can see that not being a real confirmation. It is super cryptic, but major media outlets reported it as such. When she says clear, that word I would argue, maybe it's clear to some. It's not so clear to me though. The threads never really revealed themselves for moi. But the thing that got me 
was the phrase that they used in the promotional videos and pictures. Two worlds collide. And I get caught up in this because words have meaning to me. The definition of collide, according to Merriam-Webster, is to come together with solid or direct impact. Come together. Come together. Definition of together, according to Oxford languages, is into companionship or close association. Close association. I don't know what was close about these two stories. Some say the chemist. Oh, she worked for the military and the military was involved with the aliens. And to that, I'd like to say, okay, so Red Tide is also in close association with Saving Private Ryan and Inglorious Bastards and, and like, I don't know, fucking MASH? That's a big stretch for me. Maybe these two stories are in close association and I'm just not clever enough to catch on. That is a very real possibility. I only connect them through conspiracy theories and how absolutely ridiculous they sound when they are actually played out on screen. Like celebrities drinking the blood of infants for knowledge and power. And with Death Valley, I mean, pick a fucking conspiracy theory, bro. Amelia Earhart, fake moon landing, alien abductions, Marilyn Monroe being killed by the government. I still believe in aliens and I still believe in some weirdo harmless conspiracy theories, but I can recognize how wild they seem played out before my eyes. And speaking of theories, there are a few things that stuck out to me and I went down a fucking rabbit hole as I do and I went batshit crazy and again this is all for fun don't take me too seriously I don't take myself seriously I just had too much time on my hands and I went full swifty and spent 18 hours on and off deep diving into tunnels of absolute nothingness but like also maybe somethingness who knows When Harry gets killed by Alma, Ursula says something along the lines of what a shame he could have been the next Sorkin, referring to Aaron Sorkin, who is a TV and film screenwriter, playwright, and director. He is well known for using his fast-paced, snappy dialogue and sharp wit to tell dramatic stories about American politics, law, and media. So this sent me on a journey that was frankly a waste of time. But nevertheless, I want to share it because I spent a lot of time on it. And maybe you can figure something out with this that I didn't. I went back to when Harry was having his first epiphany with the little black pill and I fucking screen recorded every glance of what was in that screenplay. What he saw in his head, what he was looking at, what he was typing, and also the scenes that flashed into his brain. And if you're curious, I would like to share the images in order. The first thing we see is the text EXT period, which refers to exterior in a screenplay, which is also often used in a driving scene or referring to a driving scene. I'm going to give all my theories on all of this at the end. I just want to spill out all of the images first. Then it flashes to an image of four friends cheersing with an orange type of drink. I zoomed the F in because I'm crazy and I saw that two of the friends had really pretty bracelets on. The next flash is back to the text which says Jack grabs him by the shirt and pulls him into the next scene change into hallway. Jack and Ethan run down the hallway. Then the line gets cut off. The next line says the front door. They rush into the scene change, living room. Then we flash to the next line and it says the front door. We flash back to Harry in his inspired state and Doris rubbing her hands all over his head in an attempt to console him. Text follows that scene and it's just a slow 
blurry typing sequence of B-U-R-I capital A. That transitions to a black dress shoe stepping onto a red carpet. Then, 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 it flashes to a small rodent with teeth marks in its belly. Upon my further in-depth analysis, it's a squirrel that has clearly been eaten. Are some light bulbs going off? Are they? Just wait, just wait. Let's keep going. We go back to Harry in his current state, still very clearly overwhelmed, and Alma asks if he's okay. The next image we see is like a Jimmy Neutron brain blast kind of thing. It's like an overlay, and through that you can see a bit more of the screenplay. And it says, bam, Jack punches open the door. Ethan springs awake. Jack, get up, we have to go, now. Ethan, half awake. What? Jack grabs him by the shirt and pulls him out of his bedroom, into the hallway. Then it picks up where the other snippet of the screenplay leaves off. The next image we see is of a seemingly human who was shot in the head with a gun. Upon further inspection, it was one of the zombies that Ursula fucking shoots in the head at the end of Red Tide. It's not an exact image, but it's definitely uh, alluding to that. It's very clearly inhuman and it doesn't have any eyes. The next flash we see was kind of hard for me to figure out, but I think I cracked it. It's another overlay of two images. The screenplay text with the word peasant and beneath it we see a snippet of the letters S-T-R-O-U and then typing of the letter S. And I believe it's a makeup of the word monstrous that fits the bill. The other image meshed with it was super fucking hard for me to make out. I upped the brightness and the contrast like a mad woman. And I am convinced it's some sort of similar image to the eaten up deer we see in the opening shot of the first episode of Red Tide. I'm already starting to explain these. Let me explain the cheersing part that I mentioned earlier as well. The four friends cheersing, two with bracelets, two without. We never actually see that exact shot. I went through every fucking frame of this season. There is no shot like that. The only link that I can imagine is those four bozos in Death Valley when they cheers to their Luddite vacation, but it was with a clear drink and it wasn't, like I said, the exact same shot. I just wanted to throw that out there since I'm already fucking spilling the beans on what I think after each analysis. After the eaten up deer scene, we go back to Doris consoling Harry and then it flashes to a close-up of Harry's eyes. We still see Doris's thumb on his temple, so I'm assuming it's a close-up of him in this moment, and his eyes go from bloodshot to clear. And then he comes to and begins his writing. When he begins his writing, I screen grabbed all of the images from his computer screen, and I got nothing out of it to be honest, but here's what it said as well. Jack continued collecting himself i'm trying to protect you you have to understand that ethan i know a beat i'm sorry defeated ethan exits luna gets up and follows exterior woods day ethan and olivia walk through the woods luna in tow she stops to try and pick up a stick olivia you never told me ethan told you what olivia how she died i feel like i'm reading the fucking cursed child all over again but you know screenplays what are you gonna do ethan distracted tears off a leaf from a bush olivia continued i've heard stories I've heard my parents talking about it before, talking about her. He stops. Ethan, what'd they say? Olivia, not a lot. Just that they were sad when she passed. Everyone was. And you're not the only one who thinks the senator had something to do with it. Ethan. I know he did. Olivia. Do you think she went into the meadow? Into the meadow? What the fuck is into the meadow? 
What does that mean? I didn't figure that out. Maybe you can. I dug deep into cult too because I was like, senator? Senator? Who's a senator? And that's the only season I could think of. But I didn't find anything of value there either. Then we see a view of his notes on his desk. It's very hard to make out. There's some scribbles he has crossed out. And the rest is... I I don't know what it is, but I got a good chunk of them figured out. It's going to be random, but here's what some of them say. Night of Thanksgiving, scene 77. And then it has the title of the scene, but I couldn't make out what it said. As a constellation to the, the screen cuts off, east of Sagittarius, located in the southern hemisphere near the center of the Milky Way. This next part is all crossed out notes, but I figured it could be interesting. The scorpion does not need to speak, a silent counterpart to Ursa Major, a pattern like a hook, the creature with, and then there's some more illegible words. The next thing I was able to make out was fish hook and explain the idea of scorpion slash script constellations. So there's that. In my mind, I am stuck on Red Tide almost being a sort of personal message for Ryan Murphy, not necessarily an autobiography, but heavily inspired by his own experience writing American Horror Story. He is a writer who has a home in P-Town, which I'm sure he's done some writing in. It's a very inspiring place. Show-wise, I am stuck in the belief that everything that happens after Harry types up his screenplay isn't real. I understand that that sounds nuts, and I agree, I'm nuts for sure. But in my mind, Harry took a more normal drug, excuse my lack of a better word, and sent him on a crazy inspired spiral, and the story that follows in the show is all his imagination and his screenplay. And I think his screenplay is all about conspiracy theories. Maybe the portion of Red Tide after he had his brain blast and the writing scenes was one story and then the Death Valley story was another, making it a double feature. Overall, it felt like it was messy. I preferred the character and story development of Red Tide over Death Valley, I only felt myself personally invested in Eisenhower. Both stories had abrupt and jumbled out-of-place endings that left viewers confused and wanting more in a way that is more negative than positive. I appreciate the creativity, but it was a miss for me. I saved my biggest, bitchiest talking point for last, and this message, this is for you, Ryan. Ryan Murphy, personally. You named her Alma. Alma! Of all names in this world, you named her Alma. You put this season partially in P-Town, where they got married. You abducted our Kit Walker and left us hanging. And then you did a season with an alien storyline and weird unexplained pregnancies. And you gave her the name Alma and put it in P-Town. You know what you did, Mr. Murphy. We asked for Kit Walker and you gave us valiant fucking Thor. He will always be the inferior Michael Langdon to the unmatched Tate Langdon. That's all. That is my off the rails rant. Let's get into some news. You're dismissed, Ryan. Starting with Netflix news. An update in the Netflix gaming world, Netflix has launched its first games worldwide as it seeks to break into the game subscription market. We have talked about this before. Very exciting news. The company rolled out updates to its Netflix app on Android smartphones, showing what games are available for download. To begin with, the five mobile games that are included for Netflix subscribers are Stranger Things 1984, Stranger Things 3 The Game, Card Blast, Teeter Up, and Shooting Hoops. The company is promising more to come with no advertising 
advertisements and no in-game app purchases. While the initial games have relatively simple graphics and casual gameplay, Netflix says it is in very early stages, but plans to eventually create games for, quote, every kind of player. Netflix's release of Tiger King 2 will go ahead on November 17th after a judge denied Carol Baskin's request for a temporary restraining order only hours after it was filed according to Deadline. Baskin and her husband Howard Baskin filed a complaint in a Florida federal court aiming to block the release of the forthcoming second season of the smash hit documentary series. The suit targeted Netflix and Royal Good Productions, arguing that the companies have no right to release leftover footage of the Baskin or their big cat rescue company in the five new episodes. The couple argues that they were led to believe that the appearance releases they signed allowed the footage of them to be used for only one season. So imagine the Baskin's surprise when they saw that Carol Baskin was prominently in the trailer for Tiger King 2. Netflix announced that a new Michael Che stand-up special will premiere globally November 16th. The special is titled Michael Che, Shame the Devil. This special follows his 2016 Netflix special Michael Che Matters, in which the comedian discussed topics ranging from Black Lives Matter to gentrification. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Sophia Butella will lead Zack Snyder's latest Netflix feature, Rebel Moon. The logline for the project reads, quote, When a peaceful colony on the edge of the galaxy finds itself threatened by the armies of the tyrannical regent Belisarius, they dispatch a young woman with a mysterious past to seek out warriors from neighboring planets to help them take a stand. I have found no official release date for Rebel Moon, but I have heard that it's allegedly based on Zack Snyder's scrapped Star Wars pitch. So that sounds very cool. Moving on to Hulu News, a deep dive documentary into Janet Jackson's ill-fated performance at the 2004 Super Bowl halftime show is coming to Hulu. Malfunction, the dressing down of Janet Jackson, will explore the events that went down that evening and the pop culture shift that followed. Quick refresher if you were living under a rock in 2004, when Jackson took the stage with Justin Timberlake at the Super Bowl in 2004, near the end of the halftime show, Timberlake briefly explained Janet's breasts to millions of viewers. The move left Timberlake's legacy intact, of course, but unfairly tarnished Jackson's for years to come. With rare footage and exclusive interviews with the Jackson family members and several people behind the scenes at the Super Bowl, this documentary aims to contextualize the sexist and racist reactions to the faux pas, as well as offer insight into how it shaped the music industry. I am so excited for this. Janet Jackson is such an icon. She's the inspiration for so much music, fashion, everything, and she gets no credit, zero. Only recently have we seen people actually paying homage to Janet Jackson, and I cannot wait for her redemption. She deserves this. Malfunction, the dressing down of Janet Jackson premieres for November 13th and prepare for a cultural shift when that happens. Moving into Paramount Plus news, South Park post-COVID, the first of the 14 Paramount Plus exclusive South Park specials that we have discussed prior, will debut on November 25th. The second of the South Park specials will be available on Paramount Plus in December, followed by a traditional season of the show on Comedy Central in early 2022. South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone spoke to The Hollywood Reporter and clarified that the Paramount Plus specials aren't feature-length movies, and Viacom may have gotten overly excited in the original press release. 
And to round out the news, we have Disney Plus and an update on a previous story I had discussed a bit ago about a currently untitled Halloween special that may be based on Werewolf by Night. Marvel Studios casted Golden Globe winning Mexican actor Gael Garcia Bernal to lead the cast of the werewolf focused show that will air on Disney Plus. The Halloween special is eyeing to begin production in early 2022. While details about the project are being kept strictly under wraps, individual with knowledge say the character may be based on Werewolf by Night, the name used by two separate Marvel characters. Earlier this year, Disney announced that its original series, The Mighty Ducks Game Changers, would be returning for a second season on Disney Plus in 2022. Deadline broke the story that Estevez's option was not picked up after weeks of back and forth with his team over the show's COVID vaccination requirement. Sources close to the 59-year-old actor hinted to the outlet that creative differences may have played a role in his exit. I hope you enjoyed my rant. I am glad to have it all off my chest. I've been holding on to it for far too long. Today, I want to spotlight the Foundation for AIDS Research, or AMFAR, A-M-F-A-R, an organization near and dear to Ryan Murphy's heart. AMFAR is one of the world's leading nonprofit organizations dedicated to the support of AIDS research, HIV prevention, treatment education, and the advocacy of sound AIDS-related public policy. Since 1985, AMFAR has invested more than five $517 million in its programs and has awarded grants to more than 3,300 research teams worldwide. On their website, amfar.org, they share worldwide statistics, a practical guide to getting tested, links to other HIV resources, and of course, ways for you to get involved. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check out the pod's Instagram at NCQH podcast for updates on streaming news and or you can follow my personal Instagram at L-E-A-A underscore M-A-R-Z and my TikTok is L-E-A-M-A-R-Z-Z. Until next time, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong.